You're listening to the life of Tri. It's triathlon for your ears. Been a minute since I've spoken to you. How are you, buddy? I am good, Phil. Well, we, uh, yeah, we just finished our Life of Try newscast, which has been cruising along very well. Always fun to chat with you about that. And I guess we're uh, we're back at it again. Well, mate, can't get enough of, you know, the beautiful work that we're doing. Um, it's interesting time, isn't it? It's, it's there's a lot going on. Um, first of all, you mentioned on the newscast that, uh, you know, you guys are maybe heading back to lockdown. How's all that working for you? So things here in Canada um, have really, uh, we, we're in the midst of a, a pretty major second wave. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a, I'm trying to figure out how to be diplomatically correct. Well, there's a lot of frustration, I think, with the way uh, the government, different governments have handled things. Um, so it, you know, people are basically, or the government is like surprised or you know playing catch up right now over the second wave, and it's just so frustrating for many of us because um, we're kind of sitting here going, "What were you doing all summer?" You know, when when things backed off a little bit, and and you kept telling us that there was a second wave on its way, and it just seems like there wasn't a whole lot of prep done getting ready for that. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that uh, you know. I, the, the messaging has been a disaster here. So we are one stage below um, a lockdown. Uh, we're told basically don't leave your houses unless you need to. Uh, but restaurants are open, bars are open until 10. Um, the uh, you know, stores are open. So it's like, yeah, stay in your house, but we want to keep as much as much business going as we can. So the messaging has been just really bizarre here. And uh, so there's getting to be some frustration over how, uh, how things are being handled. Yeah. And rightly so. I mean, it, it is, it is hard. I mean, it's hard because no one's done this before, but after going down one lockdown, like we did uh, here in, in Australia, and then we've gone through another um, and literally just came out of it maybe a week ago. Um, and, and it's, it's hard because everyone wants to hang shit on the government for this or for that. They don't know how to handle it. They're trying to get advice and they've got to make the decision, don't they? Between, um, between economy and science, you know, and we chose the science route here in Victoria. And as we said on the newscast, there's, there's 17 days straight of zero cases, zero community transmission, zero deaths. Um, it works. The lockdowns, the masks, the social distancing works. Um, but it's it's not helped when it's fueled by people telling things that it's conspiracy and like the internet's just this pit at the moment, don't you reckon? Absolutely, uh, drives me to distraction um, where we are where we are at um, with the world and uh, in terms of the yeah you know I, I just find it's amazing what people will say on, uh, on the internet, uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, as you say, these conspiracy things, but also just comments that people will make and, um, stuff that, you know, they would never say to your face, uh, but jump at it. And, um, you know, I know, I know that I, I'm supposed to be a reporter and thick skinned and not let all this kind of stuff get to you, <laughs> but you, you know, you just kind of, it, it, sometimes it gets, uh, gets tiresome. Uh, when you're when you're looking at that kind of thing, you've been at this a while though. Like you've been writing articles and stories, and you've been putting your name out there in the public eye for for years. I mean, you were doing it well before I started, and <laughs> still going. Yeah, so but, you're trying to say uh, I'm really old, right? Is that what you're? <laughs> was that nice, nice guy, <laughs> something like that? I don't yeah, go too hard. Go. But how do you like? How do you cope with that? How do you cope with the you know the slings and the arrows and that? I, I can. When we first started, first off the bite, we had a comment section. And the comment section didn't require any form of sign up. And so it was the fucking wild west. The comments on our site were just wild. People were just unhinged. I thought in some areas, um, if I wrote an opinion piece and as you know, I love an opinion. Um, I would get just 
kind and the most hurtful things people would just tell you. And I'm like, dude, I just said someone was a better athlete than someone else. I'm not saying much going. I mean, how have you coped with the whole thing? Well, I uh, I would argue I haven't. I'm terrible at coping with all of that. Yeah, but, right. Um, but I, you know, um, right from day one. So, yeah, I, I started doing all of this stuff um Seriously, I guess in '93 when I retired, like I was a I was a pro triathlete. Um, my last two years of racing, I went to journalism school. Um, I was never good enough to, you know, ever make enough money at the sport to just do triathlon. So I was always working away at something. You know, I did some coaching and some personal training uh, to help make ends meet, and then, as I said, went back to school. Uh, for my last two years of racing and then you know got into got into the world basically right in 92 93 um and uh but right from day one you know I've, I've always worked in newsrooms or worked with people who just made it abundantly clear like you know hey you want to play in this in this realm you have to be thick-skinned you can't let this yeah. stuff get at you you have to do your job and 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 Phil, like you know, I know you, I'm sure you got some stuff, but we get nothing compared to uh, what some other reporters, uh, you know, in, in, <laughs> no. have to deal with. Um, no. You know, this this is the first year um, that I've ever had to get a story lawyered up. That I've ever had a um, a letter uh, come from a lawyer about something that I've been working on. So. Um, you know, I, I've and I've been doing this since '93, right? So, we got it pretty easy compared to yep. uh, what some other folks go through as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's just you, you just have to. You know, Peter Henning. Um, I, I still remember. You know, one of the first times uh, Peter Henning used to be the vice president of um, television for Iron Man, and uh, my mentor, and was my boss for a while. You know, certainly one of the best bosses I ever got to work under and um you know very early on in in working with peter i remember him just kind of rolling in and me showing him some negative comments or something and and he just said well yeah you've been doing you've been doing this long enough you know how to deal with that and moved on right like it was you yeah. know yeah uh, feeling sorry for me or or wanting any of that stuff it was like hey this is part of the business you need to uh, need to deal with it um, but I guess ultimately, as as long as you know you were fair, as long as you've been fair, as long as you've been doing all of that stuff, then you should be able to to um, get over this stuff. And and if you haven't, or if you've made a mistake, uh, you need to just admit to it and and um, you know write the retraction or write uh, write write ever whatever you need to. Yeah, if you've ever been. Um... Have you ever been like hauled over the coals by like an athlete that's ever taken you to task in person? Um, whew, trying to, th yeah, no, not really. And this is what I, you know, I always, as I was talking about, it's, it's amazing to me what people will throw up on a comment section or on Facebook or, or whatever that they don't seem to be willing to do. Um, you know, to your face. So yeah, the forums I find were the worst. There was a couple, one here in Australia in particular, um, that was just savage, man. Like they were, they were, and again, I I understand what you're saying too. If we were writing for NBA or for NFL or for you know big sports, tennis or golf or whatever, we may encounter a lot worse. I would have think, um, because of the just sheer volume of people who take a look. Um, but I think the world's getting a lot ruder and a lot more nasty uh in the last few years and I, I i can't help but think that the man in the white house has had something to do with that in terms of just normalizing bad behavior um but it's just that we are in a small sport so it does and you, you aren't immune from it either i mean you do you do cop it but i'm like you i i just it never bothered me what bothered me was uh if i'd made a mistake and a pro had come up and had a crack and said, hey, you actually got that wrong, that's when I would feel bad. But if a punter just, you know, wanted to have a crack because I reckon that athlete A is better than athlete B, I've, don't worry me. I mean, that's just an opinion, right? We've all got them. 
um, I'd often write, you know, looking forward to when you start your own website to reading your commentary, you know, like what are you going to do with that? I mean, it's just part of the sport, isn't it? Um, but what people are going to say on their, you know, on their keyboards, um, they wouldn't dare tell you to your face. Yeah, that's that, as I said, that is typically what I find. And, and yeah, I guess the other thing too, Phil, is that I feel we should, we should be trying to take it beyond even just sports. Um, you know, like I look at it as, um, you know, you, you look at what some of the, you know, political reporter has to deal with, um, you know, Maggie Haberman from the New York times having to deal with, you know, as you, you were talking about the, the president of the United States, um, going after her on, on his Twitter feed and, and, you know, she gets, uh, gets stuff from, uh, you know, basically stuff that affects her entire family. Um, yeah. You know, that's uh, that's just in, insane. The stuff that, and that's what I mean in terms of, uh, we really get nothing compared to uh, what some of these other folks uh, have to deal with. So, um, and no, generally, no. you know, triathletes, you know, the triathlon world's pretty darn nice. You know, like I reckon that's about, too. Yeah, you, you think about how welcoming our sport is, uh, you know, have you ever walked into a transition area and, and people, you know, been nasty to you or whatever? Like mm. I have, I, I don't know that I've ever even had someone say, no, you can't borrow my pump. Like, you know, no. I, I, I can't even, I can't even picture anything like that. So, you know, we, we really are a very welcoming bunch and people, um, want to help each other and all that stuff generally. So yeah, you know, Hey, if somebody wants to make a comment, more power to them. I just, um, for me, the other thing too, that I really wish people would do is, uh, read the story before they make a comment. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's the thing that I always have to, you know, just take a deep breath and just say, move on, Kevin, uh, because I just want to reply <laughs> to some of the comments that are made and you kind of go, yeah, you didn't read the story. You looked at the headline, you're throwing something out here. Um, you know, and, and, you know, please read my story before you throw these comments out. But that's how we've been trained now. Like with the invent, uh, the invention of you know um, social media and stuff, we've been conditioned to scroll. We've been conditioned to walk through something quickly. So instead of reading the article, what I'll do is read the headline and maybe the read more, which is that you know ten word blurb that will try and get you in, and that'll inform me because I don't have time. I'm scrolling it, you know. 30, 40 different posts as I roll through, you know. So that's the problem with social media is it allows you to get an, uh, a look without getting an insight. And then what you're finding, I think, too, is that people just dive off without actually having read the article, which is a shame because, you know, it's you're only ever given a very, very brief snapshot. But with our scrolling habits and our screen habits and our all those sorts of things, it's just, you know, it's all sort of morphed into this um, – I guess just this whole um, user experience. And I was listening to an, another podcast the other day, and and they were talking about implanting, you know, um, putting these chips, et cetera, into people so they can have their devices. But the stat is something like 80, 90% of adults are always within a meter of their phone. So we're, in fact, we're implanted anyway. So that habit means that journalism in sport has had to take a huge move. Um, the way you write articles has had to be moved. The way people consume stuff has had to be moved as well. So, you know, it's constantly evolving. And have you, have you found that, you know, the habits of the long read, et cetera, are starting to die? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the world has changed dramatically and, and, you know, tell us something we don't know, right? Like look at yeah. how many people I am blessed um, with triathlon magazine Canada that I have been able to continue to do what I do. Um, you is know, that because I, the internet's not that, is that because the internet hasn't really been discovered in Canada or is that sort of, still, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's so nice. Um, uh, yes, actually we, we do have, uh, believe it or not, we even have high speed internet here sometimes. Stop uh, it's, it. it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, we, we get out of our igloos. The thing is sometimes your router gets a little hot and starts melting your igloo and that can be a real pain in the butt. But, um, 
but you know, for the most part, we're we're sort of starting to work our way through that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it. So the magazine, yeah, the magazine industry uh, gets some support through government grants, um, which has been a long-standing thing. Uh, with the United States right below us, um, the Canadian government uh, does support uh, stuff to be able to kind of protect our culture a little bit. So um, yep. that's certainly uh, that's certainly been a big help. Um, we also have just, you know, and I'm not trying to make this a triathlon magazine, Canada, uh, raw, raw show or whatever. Um, but, you know, the guys do a great job. We've got a fantastic advertising crew. I just, you know, I'm so thankful that, um, these guys have been able to to keep us going and keep the keep the doors open even through all of the COVID stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been really um, fortunate on that front. Um, so yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. You look at uh, you know so many um, so many other journalists who are out of that game. You know, Triathlon Magazine Canada is one of the biggest uh, publications in North America. For no other reason, well, because of the great journalism I'm doing, of course, um, but yeah. also because we're one of the last few standing. Uh, there's so little uh, stuff going on on that front. Um, it's really hard to make. Well, it cut a swathe in Australia. It, it, it. Pff, the, the magazine, triathlon magazine industry in Australia, um, blew to absolute pieces. Yeah. Like just disintegrated, and literally overnight, I can remember. Talking to the triathlon multi-sport guys, which they'd been around forever, and that's where one of our editors came from, Tim Bradley, who was a superstar, um, and he was doing too good a work over there, so we offered him a job with us. Um, and so he you know, took a demotion. Oh, see, a lot of people would say that we launched him into superstardom, but that's you know that's that's just being a bit. Um, but yeah, it it it, it died. And then Triathlete Magazine or Triathlon Magazine Australia pff, died. And then 220 kind of just sort of ambled along. Um, but that was more a British publication. And then now, now there's nothing. There is no more of those two publications. There's no more first off the bike. The last standing news outlet really is Wits Up um, with Steph Hansen. And, you know, we had her on the podcast a couple of months ago and she was saying that the doors are open. But, you know, there are days when she thinks, well, geez, you know, how long can we do this for? So, yeah, it's tough. The industry's tough, and and the niche industry, which kind of we talked a little bit about the PTO in the in the news um, in the news just before, but they've just brought on parental leave, maternity leave. Um, you know, as some of the smaller publications are dying, and that and it's going to happen. It was always going to, I think, always going to happen, um, just because of the nature of the sport and the amount of people who actually consume the sport is pretty small, but you know, them announcing that they're kind of legitimizing and they're sort of leveling up now, aren't they? With what they're doing, um, you know, when there it's a period of time at the moment when it's so uncertain and, and people are losing sponsors and athletes are having to go to work. Um, but they're doing a really good job, aren't they? Of just getting themselves together. Uh, the, the PTO, absolutely. Uh, you know, they're, they're really uh, stepping up for the, the pro triathletes, no two ways around that. Um, but again, you know, <clears throat> the, the success of the PTO um, and the success of individual triathletes is not helping the journalism industry. Um, so, you know, you look at you know, the PTO has their own hub, right? So they're um, you know, the PTO and I, you know, they, they certainly have been supportive. Uh, you know, they've done some advertising with us. They've done some advertising, I'm sure, with other um, other uh, journalism areas. But um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're still looking to control their own message, as are many athletes. Like you look at the um, uh, Lionel Sanders with his um, YouTube videos and Rennie and um, Tim. Uh, are doing the same thing. Gwen Jorgensen has her own. Uh, so a lot of athletes are kind of saying, yeah, we're going to just skip the whole uh, triathlon journalism world and get our message out ourselves. Uh, so that once again, makes it harder and harder for 
um, journalism outlets or triathlon journalism outlets to make a go at things. So, and that's why, you know, there's, there's very few, I, you know, you interviewed uh, Jay Prasoon a little while ago. Um, how long, you know, he's been out of the um, official journalism world was four or five years ago. When did he move yeah. off to Canyon from triathlete uh, about four years yeah. ago or so. So yeah, and and seeing, he was, you know, he was a real, a lot yeah, of he's, a real hitter. he's a real hit of that guy. I mean, the guy was him and, and remember lava magazine when it came out and you know, you had some really good, really good journos, some exceptionally good people working in that magazine and they couldn't make it work or, it, you know, I man decided it was going to be working, but they were really good at what they did. And the product was amazing. Lava was a really good publication, um, but they couldn't make it work, which will tell you, you know, that things are incredibly tough to keep going. The, the lights are on with some publications, but for how long? It's the question. But I a lot, athletes have had to do this though. I think athletes have had to get more savvy with, and it's becoming easier and easier, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, if you are an athlete and you can't figure out how to create your own video, then there's something, you know, there's something wrong or there's someone around the corner who can help you, you know. Um, it's not a terribly difficult thing to do. And as technology's gotten easier and easier to, to function, athletes are, are picking up on it. And people want that. They they want that authenticity. They want the behind the curtain. They want to see, um, you know, athletes doing sessions and things like that. And I think there's, a, there's an appetite for it because we don't go online anymore. We live online. We see everything. We consume everything. And if you hit the right market with the right things, I mean, there are people I subscribe to on YouTube and watch and, you know, enjoy what they do. Um, and I wouldn't have thought a year ago I'd be doing this, but, you know, our habits change. And if triathletes don't keep up with that, uh, they're going to miss out. And this year, especially, Kevin, if they don't keep – themselves relevant how else do they keep themselves relevant if they're not doing anything you know a little bit more um different in in the social media sphere absolutely and the ones who are doing a good job with it are uh taking care of their sponsors are you know doing a, a great job of of keeping themselves um in the in the sights of so many athletes yeah no i i totally get it but it just it makes it just that much harder uh, for us to figure out where we fit as in the journalism world. Um, you know, yeah. and, and, th and, and this is the, this is the challenge. You know, when I, when I first became the managing editor of what was then ironmanlive.com before we became ironman.com, there was um, I, you know, I can't remember how many, uh, I think it was banging on a hundred thousand people for whom ironmanlive.com was their homepage. So that yep. was the first thing that they saw every day. Um, so, you know, I, I look back to those days and go, oh my goodness, how easy was life then? Like I just, I put up a story and I knew that, you know, this many people were going to see it. Um, and now it, it's, you, you, you put stuff up, you have to push it out on Facebook or, and or Twitter. Um, or else no one will look at it. Uh, very few people, um, although I shouldn't say that. I've been really encouraged to see the stats of people who are just going to our homepage every day at Triathlon Magazine. So that, that's exciting. Um, but uh, the vast majority of people are finding out about stories through social media. Um, so yeah. it's... it's um, it's a challenge on that front. And then so many people are happy to just, like they just want to know who came top three at a race. They don't want to read a whole story about it. So the the Twitter uh, or the tweet that has the top three from Ironman Florida, that's all they need to see. So how, how are you intending in to handle you want it? to write a recap story? Yeah, it, it doesn't. I mean... <laughs> How are you going to handle the fleet? You, have you gotten your head around that yet? How am I going to handle the fleet? Oh, I've caught you out here. The, the Twitter, that the post that lasts for a day, if I read that right, that Twitter is posting, um, you can post something that only lasts a day. <laughs> oh, um, I, I have not heard about that. And 
Um, yeah, good grief. I'm so glad we have a social media person at the office who can help me out with all of this stuff. But um, yeah, because I, I make no pretenses at uh, being any sort of expert on the social social media end of things. And um, yeah, it's, and it's a real challenge too, because I think there's a lot of the triathlon audience who are like me, who are not, you know, super active on the social media front. Um, yeah. You know, you look at, uh, you look at triathlon demographics and there are a lot of people over 40, a lot of people over 50, a lot of people over 60 who aren't, you know, who are, I'm not saying that those people aren't active on social media, but not to the same extent um, as, as the folks in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, it's certainly, well, the fleets, are, they last a day and then they, they're basically conversation starters. They've been rolling it out in uh, some countries. Uh, and apparently it's coming to a store near us. So look out for that. Um, we had a really interesting conversation though and I wanted to sort of just pick up on this one. Doping in triathlon uh, is it's not rife. It's it's definitely not rife, but it's definitely not non-existent. Um, you raised a really interesting point about how you have turned the corner from being a give them a lifetime ban if they get caught to maybe softening your approach to that. And we talked about that in the um, in our newscast. Um, I'm. I'm a staunch supporter of redemption and um, I'm also a staunch supporter for uh, support, I should say, for, uh, for, for giving people a second chance um, because I think that's how life works. But there's two sides of this story and we'll cut into both. But first of all, Kev, tell us about your sort of swing from this uh, ban them forever to more of a, hey, okay, what, what, what now? So... I, I do want to just say I still wrestle with the band for forever. Uh, so I, my first gut reaction is somebody gets caught doping, uh, it's cheating, um, and it's it's cheating done with intent. Um, like you you know exactly what you're doing. You're planning. You're this is a process that you plan and everything. So my first reaction is always boom, like right out. I just absolutely. And I also wrestle with, and I know the science doesn't back this up, but I just still wrestle with, you know, if you've been on, on a doping program for six months or a year and gain all of the strength and, and be able to do this, uh, are, are able to do stuff that you were never previously capable of doing. I still wrestle with, how, you know, how long that stays with you. I, you know, I, I you know, if, if there was a point at which I could do a certain level of training or activity, I kind of feel like that might stick with me for a while. So this is where I really, you know, I, I still want that. But then I look at, you know, the, this all came up through uh, the story that I've been working on. I've written a few stories about Nina Kraft and her passing away uh, in, in August of this year, um, and um, you know the family has not sort of come out with uh, the the cause of death, but um, you know it's believed that she she took her own life, and a lot of that, or it, many of her friends feel that was because she was never able to get over the stigma that came after her positive doping test in 2004 at uh, the yeah. Ironman World Championship. And as I write in the story, um, I am pretty confident that that was, that stretch was the only time that she ever doped. Like, um, you know, I, I went to give her a hug at the awards ceremony in Kona that year. And, and I wrote, it felt like I was hugging a two by four. You could just, tell she was uncomfortable with what she had done like all the yeah. way through now she didn't you know admit to it right away she didn't admit to it until she was caught so you know there's that so um that got me thinking yeah you know how do we do all of this stuff and i still wrestle with it uh, but now i do understand where where people are coming from in that 
there needs to be the redemption, exactly what you were talking about. In society, we do give people a second chance and we need to do that in the doping sphere as well. Um, and we also need to, the forgiveness needs to um, go beyond just serving your suspension. So, you know, Nina, well, there was a pro that uh, I had dinner with after Nina beat her at uh, Louisville one year, and, and she told me at dinner, yeah, I spat on her when she went by. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I can be behind that one. Uh, yeah. You know, like, yeah. I, I get it. I get your frustration, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the answer. It's not, it's, it's hard. Okay. So again, you, you say exactly right. There's two things that dopers get gains that they make obviously. And then they keep them if they, you know, if they go back to non-doping, they've already made their gains. They also, um, they've also taken money away from other pros. That's the argument. Um, and it's, as you said, calculated. Right, like it is. It's if you're gonna put something in your body that you know is gonna help you, it's calculated. You've sat down and thought about it, spoken to someone, acquired it, and then gone and done it. So there's a whole process here. But at the same time, if someone's gone out and planned a robbery, gone and done that robbery, and been caught by the police, gone through the law courts, jailed, gone to jail, and come out, do we hang something around their neck? Do we, you know, do we, as a society, we don't. We let them come back into society. Now, if they repeat offend, the, the punishment is harsher. And I think that's where in doping, if they do repeat, because I always think, though, once you start doping, now I, I have a real problem with those who say they don't, because I think if you get up every day for 10 years to go to work and put on a certain pair of boots, even when you stop doing that for a period of time and go back to that work, the first thing you're going to do is put on that pair of boots. It says to me that you always do it. Now, your comments about, you know, Nina Craft is that isolated period. You know, yeah, probably right. But um, I don't know, maybe, you know, a six-year ban to for first offenders because that's a significant way that they're gains that they've made and it's a significant ban to maybe, um, I guess, take that incentive away um and then if they go again it goes to life but uh, i think you know if society is willing to give criminals a chance these are sporting criminals so you know maybe it's a it's an opportunity for us to you know m match with what society is doing but i get it's a really emotional thing and everyone gets really caught up i mean everyone loves to tee off on lance armstrong still um you know and i to be honest, I don't really care what he's up to. You know, I know he has a podcast, um, The Move, et cetera, and he's on that. And I've listened to it a couple of times. It's not something I want to get involved in heaps just because it's not my thing. Um, but plenty of people think it's great. And he's made a niche for himself and he's come back and he's able to have those conversations. Um, and I, we made the point in the newscast, you know, look at some of the cyclists in Europe who are able to come back after doping bans and work on television. And they're considered you know, darlings of the media. So how are we upset at someone like a Lance Armstrong and not upset at a, as we said on the newscast, like a Richard Veronque or, or someone like that who's done a, um, you know, or Bianca Reese is still in the sport, you know, like how's that work? Yeah. Well, and, and I, uh, I, I, in my story, uh, Nina talks about Marco Pantani um, and reading his story um, and that, kind of helping her get out of the depression and funk that she was in because she kind of said, yeah, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to be this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to get on with my life and get back and racing. Um, and in the end, uh, you know, she wasn't able to, to get past all of that, or, you know, I'm sure there were other, other factors as well. Um, so, and this is what I, I wrestle with in the story. Um, exactly, exactly what you're saying. Why are some folks forgiven and moved on and not others? And um, the Lance one is another really interesting one. I, when Lance made his return to triathlon, um, that was my beat at Ironman. I was, I was following Lance around and I went from, you know, the first time I was supposed to interview him in, in, uh, Panama city, uh, down in Panama. That's right. Um, 
you know, his agent walked into the room and looked around and went, I know you, you and you, everyone else out. And I was one of the everyone else outs. Um, and uh, two months later, that same agent was calling me and saying, hey, Kevin, Lance is you know, not going to be able to meet you where he's supposed to. Let's do the interview while he's walking to the press conference through the back of the hotel. Um, and I have pictures of me interviewing him and, you know, basically in that little hallway behind the kitchen and, and in an elevator um, and, uh, you know, him setting up interviews for me uh, when Lance was just too engulfed with crowds. So, you know, he'd say, go find yourself a quiet room and a phone and, and Lance will call you in five minutes. And Lance did. Um, so it was an amazing ride to go through all of that. And, you know, Lance, a charismatic, charismatic guy and you sort of could see all of that um and i wrestled with oh you know are, are people being too harsh and uh, with him but then when you meet some of the people who um whose lives were destroyed uh for just doing their job you know like i, I met a guy when i was covering the giro d'italia a few years ago um who, you know, almost lost his house. Uh, his family were under so much pressure because he was writing stories about Lance and Lance went after him, went after the newspaper and all that stuff. You kind of realize, yeah, that's, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty low when you're, when you're going after people at that level. So. Yeah. Um, and, and then those guys, then, then nosebleed, right? Like we talked about scale, didn't we? You know, about how Lance's transgressions were so great not just for the sport, for the people around him as well, were also great. So people tend to carry a grudge on that one because, as you said, he's you know he's he's hurt a lot of people, which he did. Um, he threatened a lot of people. He's tried to sue a lot of people. Those journo's like Paul Kimmage and David Walsh and and, and that lot who who Rupert Guinness who hung in there um, and and watched it happen and unfold like a slow car wreck over seven years. Um, you know, credit to them for sticking at it. But yeah, I mean, it's, he's kind of a little bit, I think he's kind of more exceptional. And as we said in the newscast too, I think, you know, the, the average doper who doesn't win, you know, like the Irish kid who got caught the other day, I mean, he's, athletically, he's of no consequence to anyone. So he's retired and everyone's like, well, whatever, okay. And no one would even know his name. Had he won two Konas and got caught, there'd be a massive, massive outcry. And they'd be a lot different because the scale of what he of the crime is bigger, you know, and it makes sense to me that that's that's kind of where it is. I think Lance is he's almost on a, on his own plane. I think um, he's on his own level because of you know the whole story around it and the fact that he was a global icon. Um, you know, it, yeah. It is, and the the other thing, sorry I, to to jump good. in if I may just. The other thing that I always wrestled with with the land stuff was the people who were quite happy to jump on the bandwagon. So, you know, are you are you trying to tell me that so many of the sponsors didn't know what was going on, uh, weren't you know, and 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 they were quite happy to jump on that bandwagon and make millions of dollars on his back. Um, and you know, I'm absolutely not trying to defend Lance, as I've said, but. You know, from where he's sitting, at some points he's kind of, yeah, I, you know, I need to keep this rolling to keep this bandwagon going and to keep, as you know, all of these people um, employed and making money, right? You know, somebody told me that the reason he did his comeback to cycling was to raise more money for the Lance Armstrong Foundation. They needed money for a hospital. So this was the quick and easy way to do it. I, I'm guessing that's a part of it. I know that Lance was also an avid competitor. He just wanted to race again, right? Um, yeah. But um, yeah, the, all of those pressures uh, are, are crazy as well. Um, but do you Phil, think there's, I'll, I'll, do you I'm think there's one, No, go on. Sorry. Go, I, I want to throw one out to you, age groupers. So when I initially wrote about Nina Kraft in 2004 on Ironman, uh, I can't remember if we had switched to Ironman.com by then or not. Um, I could not believe the inundation of emails I got, letters I got from people um, 
talking like saying you are the the pro stuff is the tip of the iceberg um the real <laughs> doping in triathlon is the age groupers they have the money um and the research i looked into it you know the anti-aging clinics <laughs> that um there's an abundance of down in the states um that's where a lot of people are going for uh for their stuff and and there's a you know, people were, were quite op- or quite vociferous to me that there's an issue with age groupers doing this stuff. It's a massive issue, right? They're not tested a lot. They're they're loaded because the demographic is. I mean, the most uh, the average triathlon couple earns over a couple hundred thousand dollars. I think that's it's you couple. know they're, they're, the individual makes over two hundred grand an Ironman out. Yeah. They've got the money. And that's one thing that I think that, I mean, to dope costs money, right? Like it's expensive. It's not um, it's not a cheap proposition. I, I remember a pro telling me two things. He said I could never dope. A, <laughs> I'd never remember to take it on time and I'd just muck it up, which is fair enough. Um, he's a bit forgetful. And he also said, yeah, I couldn't afford it. You know, and it costs a lot of money to dope properly. Um, but the other side of it is that age groupers have time and we talk about the super age groupers, right? We're talking about the the pro age groupers, those who are successful in their businesses and have worked to where they can have time off or those who just decide that they can minimum wage it and be a full-time kind of pro age group, uh, which is a beast that emerged a few years ago and is still going strong. I mean, you look at some of the guys who raced uh, Ironman Melbourne one year and, and they're running eight, 40s and you're like jesus like you're working full time how does that work now i'm not saying they're doping by any stretch but there is that breed of athlete um about that who are definitely in my eyes would be doping i just think and i i think and i'm going to cast a probably i think it's it's hard to dope in this country i think in australia i think it's hard to access it and find it. i think in europe and in other countries it's a little bit easier to find it and to and to access it um, but i'm not by any stretch impugning other continents and not ours because i think and i in fact you know you know what and i can remember standing at a, at a kona press conference and someone was standing next to me of note. And as the person was getting their victory, they said to me, they will get popped. They are doped to the gills. Now, I went to Kona 10 times, and I'm not telling you whether it's a man or a woman. I'm not even going to get into that. But they said that's that was the comment to me at the press conference. They just said, you wait. They get, they'll get popped. They have been doping the whole time which I found a telling comment at the time. And this was someone who would know in my book who would have known. Now, either the control didn't work or the athlete beat the test or it was complete just, you know, a mischievous thing to say. Um, but age groupers, they do get controls, but there's no nowhere near it. And, and then and also, you know, my, my theory on, on, on bike doping, I would think there would be athletes there bike doping as well. Um, so you mean that with the bike doping, you're talking about the, um, motors and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah. I, I'd love to come back to that in just a second. Um, so I just wanted to, to follow up with the, the, uh, what you were talking about. Um, so, you know, certainly we, we went through, I I know where I wanted to go. One, I would argue, I'm not sure that it's as inaccessible in Australia as you are thinking. Um, <laughs> I, I, We're clean no, I, 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 just, I, I just think that, um, you know, that certainly um, here in Canada, you know, a lot of people are, it's not like they're going to the, you know, the weight, weight room and finding a big gronk and saying, hey, do you have any roids? Um, a lot of this stuff <laughs> there. Big gronk. What's a big gronk? <laughs> <laughs> a big gronk is just a big gronk. Look it up. I don't know. Some big oh, dude. Who, good. Who, um, Very good. And and um, you know they they're doing this through doctors. You know doctors are prescribing yeah. this stuff and and um, you know there's a there's a doctor here in Canada who would 
do a full write-up for athletes and come back and give them a list of what he could give them at what levels uh, so that they wouldn't test positive. Um, so, uh, you know, they, I, I think that's kind of the, where a lot of the folks are getting it. And, um, you know, Charlie Francis uh, from here in Canada, the coach of Ben Johnson, um, you know, and that whole stuff back in the 80s and early 90s, um, he led the way in many ways because, you know, his athletes, it was all through doctors and his athletes were doing like a third of the amount of the drugs of uh, his competitors, according to him, but getting way better results. So, um, so I think a lot of it is the testing, unfortunately, is always seems to be a step behind the athletes. It's getting yeah. better, it's getting better, but it never seems to be uh, to be there. So. Um, yeah, I, I think if people want to do all of that stuff, um, they'll figure out ways, uh, you know, if they, um, and so the thing I wanted to say is, and we hit on this earlier, that the way our society has changed so dramatically, um, society, basically there's a whole attitude in society. As long as you don't get caught, it's fine. You know, you can, you know, in, in business, you can keep doing stuff as long as there, there's so many businesses that'll keep banging on that edge. As long as you don't get caught, we'll keep doing that. Um, and that's really transferred to life, I feel. Um, and uh, that seems to be a lot of the way that this stuff has gone. Yeah. And look, the, the, the other side of, as we said, is the, is the, you know, the bike doping because no one checks bikes at all. So I just think, in my mind, I think, you know, if no one's looking, let's do it. No one's doing the hard checking that they are in the UCI. Obviously, it's a resource thing. Um, but who would, who, how would you know? Like, you think of a 1,500-person race where you wheel your bike into transition and no one checks. So, um, I, and I can't remember, I'll need to check this, but I remember the ITU bought a bunch of the, you know, the cameras or whatever, the x-ray machines or whatever they're using. Um, I believe Ironman did as well um, to check bikes. And I really, I wrestle with this bike doping thing because I am, I really wonder how many people are, um, are throwing that stuff into their bikes. Um, and, you know, and, and I wrote about this as well. It bothers me that everyone's jumping on this bike doping bandwagon to check because it is really easy to check for. Right. And um, so everybody's making a big deal about that because that's something they can do something about the whole uh, doping thing. The drug doping stuff is really hard. Um, and so to me, uh, people were jumping on the bike doping thing because that was an easy thing that they could, they could go after. And, you know, how many people have been caught bike doping, like at the uh, elite level? They, I just remember there was, um, was it, a, uh, somebody got caught in cyclocross at the world cyclocross yeah. championships or something, but it's not like, you know, they're, they're finding half the field at the tour de France are doing this. Like, you know, no, but they can't do it though. Like you can't do it. You, you, it's, you run an iPad or whatever it is over the, the, the bike and it's done. It's so much easier than a blood test or a urine test. And you can do it out on the course, whereas you can't do that. But they don't do that at all at Ironman. I mean, you, the, the ITU might be doing whatever they like, but at an Ironman, no one's doing it that I've seen. And you could literally, now I don't know how much it would help you. I don't know. I just think if no one's checking for it, People are going to do it or try it. There's some, I reckon it's gone on somewhere um, about that. I just think it's somewhere, someone's had a crack at it and I would think more people would be on it because it's so easy to disguise. And the big, those time trial bikes and stuff like that, there are, I think uh, there's space to secrete something like that. Yeah, see, I, I wrestle with that as well. Um you know, because you you look at a lot of the carbon fiber bikes, it's not like you're you got a tube that you can, like a metal tube that you can cut and reweld and and all of that stuff, right? Like these come out as one piece, one piece carbon fiber deals, so they're hard to, you know. Yeah, now I want to throw a motor in there, 
I'm like, I, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, but you've got all sorts of shit on a bike, don't you? You've got all sorts of crap that sits on a time trying to troll a triathlon's bike, a triathlete's bike. Um, you know, not to say you're going to sit a motor on the top tube, but I don't know. I just, I, it, it's something in, there's something of, I mean, I've been proven wrong many times in this podcast. <laughs> I have a history of being proven wrong. Uh, I just figure if I hang with the theory, it'll come right. I don't know. I just tend to think that there, there is, there will be a core group of people who might be looking at it. Um, and I don't, I don't get how much advantage it would give you over the course of 180 Ks. But if for a certain amount of time, it was able to, you're able to lift your watts without actually, and your speed without actually, you know, putting in the physical effort for it. If you're going to dope as an age group, why not go the whole hog and 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 do that too? Plus the, you know, with all the time trial bars and everything else, and the you know the you could secrete a switch there pretty easily as well. Um, oh, I, help I, me out. I'm sure, Phil. I'm with you. I'm sure somebody has tried it. I just wrestle with it being uh, like any sort of implications that it's rampant. Um, yeah. and you know, I don't know about you, but throwing something that's going to add an extra two pounds to my bike would drive me to distraction. Um, like, I, and so, um, and for when I had a look at this, um, you know, people were putting these, you know, talking about putting these motors, uh, they were going in, in the down or the seat tubes of the bike. I think usually I can't yeah. remember. Um, there's some that you, you know, some, and then the, the battery goes, in a like a, a water bottle looking thing that sits in the water bottle cage it adds some weight as well um it just yeah i i really wrestle with um with the logistics for all of that and for the time frame like uh you know people were talking about using it for little bursts um for up to an hour and you know this was the 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 idea and i can get that in a cyclocross race it's it the race is an hour and it's all about having a little acceleration to to get up to the group again and all that stuff um i just wrestle with the 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 benefits sure yes it's going to help i just i really question how rampant it is and i i would be shocked if there were um very many pros uh, lining up in Kona with a motor in their bike. Um, I think uh, you know, people <laughs> It'd be brave you know, though, wouldn't it? Like you'd run into a transition area and like you just you just let go of your bike and it would self rack. <laughs> <laughs> well, just or just you know, go up Polani Hill, like you know, doing up your shoes and not pedaling and, yeah. and just cruising yeah. up at at thirty k an hour. Like that would be. Um, yeah, I, I I wrestle with that anyway. So, yeah, you're probably right. Look, you know, it's a fun it's a fun thing to speculate on, but I, you know, who knows? I mean, I, the human human nature and, and athletes, and who knows how far people would go to to get that? If you know what I mean. Oh yeah, people. It's it's amazing the lengths that that people will go to. Like you. <laughs> And yeah, I think we probably have done this to death. But yeah, you think about, I remember reading about the doping stuff in the 70s and 80s, people injecting other people's urine into their bladders before they did a test. Uh, uh, the, the the lengths that people will go to are mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. People, you know, have ceased to surprise me these days. Um, I wouldn't be shocked at all. But it's... um. The last thing I guess we can hit upon, because we have been running this very nicely. Um, we talked a little bit about the newscast too, about Daytona. Um, you're going over there. You, have you got trepidation around this or is you're all, you're all okay with it? Oh, um, I'm trepidation. I spot. I'm not sure if trepidation is, is quite the right. Yeah, I guess that's totally the right word. So my wife is a public health nurse. Uh, so we live COVID-19 uh, we so we were at a training camp in Lanzarote in February. I think we came back February. I think we came back February 29th. Um, and uh, and on March 3rd, she was um, put on the COVID-19 uh, team uh, through public health, and has been working nonstop at that ever since. Um, I have yeah. never seen her put this many hours in. 
they are swamped right now. So they went through absolute bedlam from March until May. Things eased off in June, uh, July, um, August, and then September, things started to ramp up. She was on the school team for a total of nine days uh, before they had to redeploy her back to case management and, um, and uh, contact tracing. And they are not even remotely able to keep up right now. So that's here in Canada, where we are, you know, in fairly, it's not quite a lockdown, but we're at what they're calling the red zone, which is one step yeah. below lockdown. Um, when I spoke with the race director in, uh, in uh, for Challenge Daytona a few, uh, last week, um, she was saying, yeah, like everything's back to normal. We're just wearing wa- wearing masks. And I don't think masks are mandatory in Florida. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely going to be, uh, well, yeah, you know, there's concerns with me heading down there. I have to do a two-week quarantine when I get home. Um, and, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the protocols and what I need to do to be as safe as possible. It's certainly a um, concern, I reckon. Um, and more power to you for getting down there. Um, we talked a little bit, again, circling back, but the athletes have to make that decision too. That's a tough decision to make, um, to forego a major championship with money attached and all the other things and do the right thing by the sponsors versus, you know, look after your health. Um, I don't begrudge any athlete saying, not for me. Nor do I sort of think the same for someone who says, you know what, I'm going to go and see what goes on. Um, this year has been a really nasty year for all of that. So for those athletes who want to get involved, you can't blame them. But it's um, it's certainly got to be a calculated risk to um, to head down there and, and do that, given, as you said, not a mandatory mask. And, and Florida is just nuts. You know, the governor there is, uh, he's, you know, proven time and time again that he doesn't really... Um, care about what's going on they seem to be sort of ignoring it from the outside i may be wrong and hoping to be proven wrong but it seems like you know there are some states in in america that are just going "Ah, well you know it's turning a corner or it's done or it's not happening and um, that's a pretty major thing when you've got countries like you know britain and and you know in europe all starting to shut down and now you guys are sort of circling it as well um yeah it's it's a tough call for the athletes Absolutely. And, and it's very interesting to me, uh, three of the biggest names in the sport, uh, Jan Frodeno, Daniela Reef, uh, Lucy Charles Barkley, are not on that starting uh, or in that starting field. Um, now, Jan injured himself in a bike crash in, in September and said he was done for the year. Um, but uh, yeah, I know I find it interesting that um, some athletes are, are taking a step away. And as you say, people need to make their own calls and decisions on this front. Um, and we need to not lay any judgment for how they, how they make that call and what they decide. I think uh, you know, people need to come up with their own comfort level. Uh, the one thing that I have been pleasantly surprised with is the athletes have talked about, or that I have talked to who have raced, have felt that the uh, the precautions and the uh, the organizations have done a great job at the events that they've been at, and uh, certainly you know Challenge Daytona, um, they have a wonderful opportunity there. You know, very close. The race all takes place at. Daytona International Speedway, they really can control who's going in and all of that stuff. So, you know, if you're going to do it somewhere, uh, that seems to me to be a, a, a great spot to, to go. And, and Daytona International Speedway has already put on some events uh, this year. So they're getting, they're getting pretty good at figuring out how to, how to do all of this. Yeah, and it'll come down to personal choice, you know, like as we said, you know, if you're an athlete and this is for you, then you're in. If it's not, then, you know, that's that's again that, that personal choice. But um, hopefully we uh, it, it does, you know, go ahead and those athletes who are there and your good self, Kevin, are, um, you know, able to, uh, to journey there and back with uh, no problems. 
we have just ticked on an hour, which is good going. Um, and I reckon it's a good spot just to leave it there. We're going to catch up with you, obviously, on the newscast, of course, which you can see via the uh, Triathlon Magazine Canada Facebook page um, or the website you can see if you've missed it. Uh, if you don't get it live, um, you can see that. Two, just two handsome blokes getting it done. Um, <laughs> what, is somebody course, else is doing the newscast now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll be wearing masks. Um, thanks again, too, to the beautiful people of Triathlon Magazine Canada for making this possible and supporting us on this. We love them and we love doing this. And thank you for listening. If you're out there, you can get us on The Life of Tri on Insta. Uh, we post a whole bunch of random triathlon photos a lot because we have lots of them just sitting around. So we thought we'd share them. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. McKinnon. You are, as per usual, a the pro's pro of all journalists. Hey, uh, thank you so much, Phil. Great chatting with you as always. And uh, we'll uh, see you on another edition of The Life of Try. Thanks for listening to The Life of Try. If you like us, tell your mates and follow us on Instagram at The Life of Try. <laughs> <laughs>